give you access to do this as well. You got it. Okay. Should be all set to do that now, too. We're rolling. We are rolling. Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, today's episode of Emotional Duct Tape. I'm Corey. I'm Jamie. Jamie. Well, I'm, I usually ask how you are, but you had a birthday like two days ago. So I know that's like really special. But how are you? <laughs> I am doing very, very well. I'm having a great week so far. Um, my birthday was wonderful. Um, I'm, it's continuing on um, <laughs> as I see other, you know, family members and things. Uh, last night, I had a, a daddy-daughter date to Costco uh, oh, with my father, that. and uh, he surprised me at the end and said, you know, I got this, which was really nice. <laughs> So uh, Eric gets a little bit of presents too, because uh, I got us a lot of really good food. Um, yes. Love Costco. I don't know if you have a Costco membership, oh, but totally. yeah. um, I could have spent another hour in there at least, but my father wanted to dictate um, exactly what order I got things and um, what aisles I went down. So I kind of was like, a little irritated and I was just like you know what <laughs> I'm gonna get what you know I what I know exa exactly what I need and um I, I guess I understand now why because you know treated me at the end so anyway it's been it's been a great week um I got this beautiful you guys can't see this but maybe I'll post it on Instagram um but Eric got me this beautiful uh opal bracelet which is my birthstone so really thoughtful really sweet um and yeah, I got to see the kids I babysit for and have a little party with them. So it's just been, it's been great. And um, of course, your lovely message uh, to me, you know, I got all choked up as I Aww. do. <laughs> so thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. You know, uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, just lots going on in life. And, you know, uh, things have ways of going up and down, but I feel like the 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 general joy is is there so good yeah, every day's every day's progress so i'm i'm grateful for that um high five high fives all the way uh but yeah today we have a special guest and i think he might put us out of business because his podcast voice is just sublime um so our guest i first met on tiktok as this is like this is our common tale tiktok but uh <laughs> he has a unique experience insight into the grief process so please welcome to the podcast chaplain derek hey Corey, jamie thank you so much for having me and happy belated birthday to you jamie oh thank you thanks for being here <laughs> sure i also went to costco and my wife surprised me with a hot dog and a coca-cola so oh my I god was... i mean <laughs> it's like the little things right yeah, absolutely We've been big on hot dogs over here lately. Um, I like rediscovered hot dogs and uh, <laughs> uh, so that's, I, I love it. Um, I'm glad awesome. to hear that other people like in, yes. still enjoy hot dogs, even though we're not yes. six years old. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I might be the, the person, the, I'm the only four-year-old who doesn't like hot dogs, I think. <gasps> I'm pretty sure he's like, I don't want a hot dog. I'm like, okay. So okay. here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I was little, my mom used to get me the bar S hot dogs, the ones that are like the cheap Walmart. They're made out of rubber. When I get older, it's when I discover the nice Angus 100% all beef delicious hot dogs. So it, it took me a while. 
Yes. And I, uh, I feel like they're coming back as this kind of artisanal thing. <laughs> in a sense, you can dress them up in all sorts of different ways. So that's awesome. I Yay for so the hot much. dog crew. Yes. <laughs> Uh, we should be a culinary podcast from now on. I think just go from there. Absolutely. <laughs> so Derek, what, what's unique about you when I, when I first met you, you were a chaplain in the prison system right. and now you've moved on to it's you're in healthcare as a chaplain, correct now? That is correct. So um, I, you've, you've had this experience where you've dealt with grief in, in a sense that you are helping others process their grief in a lot of ways. Um, right. what, what, how did you start the, the journey to become a chaplain, um, in, in your life? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll be succinct and, and Corey and Jamie, I know you both, uh, lost your parents prematurely and that can have a profound impact on someone. And that's really what started my journey into mm -hmm. chaplaincy. Uh, people might be surprised to know that my journey, my bachelor's degree, my undergrad was in criminal justice. And I had every intent on going into law enforcement, was a military police officer for eight years, wow. uh, but uh, lost my father. He was 49 years old, lost mm -hmm. him to cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, and sort of had one of those life-changing moments of what do I, what do I really want to do with my life? Because what I'm doing right now is not fulfilling. And... Uh, so I had been uh, raised up in the Christian faith, the evangelical Christian faith, and felt a calling to serve in that faith. However, for many reasons, I felt like being a pastor of a church wasn't my calling. Mm -hmm. I, I did not feel like that was something I wanted to do. So I just started researching, how can I serve people spiritually, but not do it in a way that is confined to the four walls of the church or confined moreover to people who are stepping in to the four walls of that particular church and I came across chaplaincy and I remembered in the military my experiences with the chaplain and that led me down the road of looking up what it takes to become sort of a board certified clinical chaplain and that started me on what ended up being a 10-year journey uh, to become a chaplain when you include all the education and practicals involved and here we are today can you um just give us a little synopsis of what a chaplain is for those of us who may not uh be familiar or practice other faiths absolutely um so uh chaplain actually comes from the latin term which means little cape and there's a story about saint martin of tours who was a soldier who saw a beggar and tore his cape in half and gave this beggar half of his cape. And really, it's about sitting with people and hearing their stories. Um, practically speaking, though, uh, to answer your question, what a chaplain does is that is a clinical board certified chaplain, because unfortunately, the term itself is not protected. So anybody can call themselves a chaplain. Um, but an actual board certified chaplain is somebody who serves the spiritual care needs of people in a marketplace setting. So for example, whether it's the military, whether it's a hospital, uh, whether it's a prison, a chaplain is going to be the one who, if you can't go and practice your spirituality, the chaplain is the one who is going to facilitate that, to protect that right, and 
to be the advocate and the liaison to ensure that people are entitled to their First Amendment right to practice their religion freely and to protect their spirituality and to provide spiritual care for them in those marketplace scenarios. Beautiful. Thank you for explaining that. No problem. <laughs> so um, when, when you started, when, when you finished your, your education in, in chaplain, chaplaincy, is that what you said? Yeah, so the, the chaplains, uh, the education is going to be similar to what a pastor or reverend will get. It's called a master's of divinity. Mm -hmm. It's usually a 72 to 90 credit hour master's degree is the, the degree that you get. And then you go on to do uh, internships and residencies at hospitals. Okay. Wow. So, so uh, once, once you finished your education, began your career, as sure. a chaplain, where, where did you start off with? Um, like, where was your first position? What, what, I should say, what, what industry or whatever, you know? The question, my, so technically my first position would have been in my internship and my residency because those are actual positions, a chaplain intern. That was at a local hospital in Lynchburg, Virginia, a uh, little general hospital. Um, then I did my residency at a level one trauma center, a 900 bed level one trauma center. Wow. Uh, and that's Episode a year long. Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so those are a year long. The residency is a year long. Uh, then once I completed my residency, my first official staff job um, was at the prison, prison in Arizona. So, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um so let's start talking about the prison system, what it's like sure. being a chaplain there, because I, I remember having a conversation with you a while ago and you kind of explained what it was like being a chaplain sure. uh, at the prison system a little bit and everything. But um, yeah, let's talk about that because I think there's obviously the grief process of someone having to be incarcerated and having sure. to, you know, have consequences for actions, you know, regardless of, how people feel about the prison system in general, but, and then there's also too, I mean, but there, there's more, there's an extended part of that as well too. So. Sure. Um, so briefly, uh, well, first off trigger warning for any victims of sexual assault. Um, I was at a unit that was 100% sex offenders. Oh, wow. um, so it was a sex offender unit. Um, so the prison system chaplaincy was a very difficult endeavor because uh, you are dealing with so much darkness um, all around. You're dealing with, with the grief of the people who work at the prisons because they're incredibly short-staffed. Uh, prison systems have the highest rate of domestic abuse, alcoholism, and suicide mm -hmm. amongst people that work at the prison system. So you're providing staff care. And then there's just the overall helplessness of the prisoners. Many of these prisoners um, that are incarcerated are looking at sentences where they're never going to see the light of day again. Mm. And just how do you cope with that? And how do you, what tools of resiliency do you use to realize that this is going to be the rest of my life? And then on top of that, one of my jobs was death notifications. And I remember distinctly. And I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, but um, 
I remember distinctly my first death notification was a prisoner's son on New Year's Eve had been gunned down by the police. And so January 1st, I'm telling this guy that his son was killed by the police, you know, and he's already incarcerated for, you know, 25 years. And so there's just a lot of darkness in the prison system. And that's got to be really hard too, because I, I mean, obviously I'm sure you're trained for this, but being in a situation like that and a, spe- a specific section of a prison system of a prison like that where there are people who i mean you know us common folk are quick to judge and quick to you know shame and and i know people have a lot of opinions and obviously any sort of sexual offense is wrong by any nature but you have to probably work hard to separate yourself from your personal opinions about crime and you know rights and privileges and whatnot and you have to focus on um, kind of nurturing the you know the the grief and and the spiritual needs of those people in that system well for me i look at it like i'm not judging their crime i'm judging their humanity and there's okay. a great television series that came from a book series by michael Connolly, and it's called bosch b-o-s-c-h it's a cop series okay and bosch's motto is everybody counts or nobody counts You know, I understand that these people have hurt other people. But for me, I look at it from my faith perspective and my humanity perspective is I'm not the judge. I'm not the jury. I'm not the prison guard. I made my personal choice to be the chaplain. And as a chaplain, I have a role to look and find and treat and listen to the humanity of that person. Um. And so that's how I separate myself and saying, you know what, I chose the chaplaincy route. I didn't choose the law enforcement route. And so you're absolutely right. We, we are quick to look at others and my, my faith uses the word sin, wrongs, uh, wrongdoings, whatever you want to call them. We are quick to look at others and judge what they've done and quick to forgive ourselves. And I just try to, um, look at those people as people and as humans and i am there for a particular job and i am there to provide spiritual care that's my that's my role and so that's how i sort of separate uh my feelings on what they did from who they are um so in being trained in spiritual care um you mentioned you know that 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 you have like a clinical background you know what does that entail does it entail um you know like are you trained in in understanding mental illness and things like that as well yeah not so much so i mean i'm familiar just from my own personal research with the dsm-5 and mental illness and all of that um and there is a component of it that is a bit psychoanalytic as far as um, transference and counterfeit transference and looking for, for opportunities for resilience. But when we say clinical, we look at clinical chaplaincy as using evidence-based practices. Uh, we look at chaplaincy as understanding the grief process and understanding what people are going through spiritually and emotionally and providing that psychosocial support, um, looking at what support structures people have 
available to them. Mm. Looking at what previous coping mechanisms work for people and specifically looking for how their spirituality or their faith intertwines and gives them those sort of tools to work with. Because spirituality, even if somebody isn't who isn't religious, they might not go to church, they might not uh, have a religion. I believe that every person in a way is spiritual. There is something that is intangible that you hold dear in this world. There are things that can't be quantified or measured or fixed with a pill or surgically repaired that are still deeply, deeply important to you and your emotional well-being. And that's what chaplaincy is and what we look for um, within our patients and within our clients. That's so true. Um, I think about, you know, the, I mean, one of the, the shared, he could also talk about the humanity of, of people. And I think the shared human experience is grief. I mean, we, we're all going to face it. And just because somebody commits a crime and does, you know, I mean, they, they're still entitled to have an experience grief, whether that is hearing, you know, from, you know, someone like yourself that, a close family member passed away while they were incarcerated or them just dealing with the, the, the process of, of knowing their lives are going to be forever changed, whether that they're, they spend the rest of their lives in prison or whether they're going to be, you know, uh, quote unquote, an ex convict for the rest of their life. When, once they're released, I mean, so, um, sure. but you chimed in really in a really nice way about it because I think the also the shared experience is, is hope and I think that whether or not you you have faith in religion, you know, it's a spirituality thing, but also I think it's it's people need hope and they're looking for something that can they can pull pull on that will make everything feel like it's not just a, a deep dark tunnel for the rest of their lives. You know, there's something that can can still come something good that can come out of their lives. Absolutely. And I think Stephen Colbert had an excellent interview with um oh my gosh his name's escaping green right now but he's on cnn but uh oh anderson cooper anderson cooper thank you anderson cooper and stephen colbert had a very tearful and emotional interview and colbert mm -hmm. said something very profound where he said uh i believe um, i might be misquoting him but you can look it up on youtube but he said to suffer is to be human and to be human is the shared experience. And he talks about that because, you know, Stephen lost his father and I believe two little brothers in a plane crash when he was young and Anderson Cooper had just lost his mother. Um, and Stephen Colbert said that, and I agree with you, Corey, that suffering is a universal human experience. Uh, grief is a universal human experience. I have yet to meet anybody uh, that has not experience some type of suffering and uh, some type of grief in their life and it's something that connects us I think all as humans um, for better or for worse it is a, a human experience and I believe a spiritual experience that goes beyond just just the tangible into the intangible yeah, so fascinating absolutely. yeah so it's really interesting that um you know, you are, are, you studied the grief process and that's right. how, you know, you, can you, I guess, can you talk about kind of the, the steps when you first um, are introduced to someone um, 
is it the same for each person um, as far as the steps you go through to help them or how does that work? Sure. So kind of going back to the, you asked about the clinical process. So the process we go through as chaplains, clinical chaplains is called CPE or clinical pastoral education. And for those that want to know more about that, they can type in acpe.edu and that's the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. Thank for you. Anybody for that might, that. no problem that might be interested. <laughs> we love to share resources. <laughs> yeah, and that's, um, so as far as being introduced to somebody, so at the current hospital, I'll just give you kind of my role. I am the trauma chaplain there. So basically I respond to every trauma, which is gonna include falls, car accidents, stabbings, assaults, all of that, anything that's considered a trauma or a traumatic experience, I'm part of that team that responds to every single trauma that comes in the hospital. Um, every code, so every code blue, uh, every code lavender, which is something involving neonatal, um, code pink, which is pediatric. Um, so every, every code in the hospital. <clears throat> and then every stroke and every STEMI alert, which are those are the heart attacks, they're called STEMI alerts. So a lot of times in this particular setting, because it's going to be different to answer your question, depending upon my role, you know, say I was a palliative care chaplain where I'm dealing with somebody in hospice and I'm going to have a long-term relationship with them, right? So I'm going to see these people for as long as they're alive, which might be three months, four months, five months, six months. Whereas a trauma chaplain, I'm introduced to these families that I'm probably never going to see again. You know, it's kind of a one and done type thing. I might see them for a few days or a day. So, so I, I hope I answered your question. It will be different depending on yes. the circumstance um, and, and what the needs are and what type of chaplain I am. So, but typically if I enter a room, if I'm just doing rounding, if I'm up on a, a floor, a med surge floor, I'm just meeting with a patient. I'll usually do a chart review. I'll look at what their diagnosis is and what's been going on with them what the nurses are doing, what the occupational therapists are doing. You know, I'm part of the team, so I want to know what's going on with this patient, so I'm informed. I'll enter the room, introduce myself as the chaplain, and unfortunately, we are known as, you know, the death squad. So people are usually a little uneasy. They think I'm in there to tell them they're going to die. Yeah. And so I'll usually kind of put them at ease and say, I'm just doing some rounding, just part of the team coming in to say hello, and just want to see how you're doing. And just like you might talk to a friend, the answer to that question is going to determine how the visit goes. And it could go a million different directions. Yeah. Maybe that person's lonely and they need to do a life review. They just want somebody to talk to and tell about their life because life is narrative and sharing and connecting your story, right? We're all reading other stories. We're writing our own stories and we're sharing our stories. It's all narrative. Maybe they need the narrative portion. Maybe they're very religious and they want religious stuff. They want somebody to read the Bible to them. Maybe they just want to sit in silence. Maybe they're an introvert, but they just want to feel connection to another human being. Maybe they need a gentle therapeutic touch on the shoulder to ground them and connect them, remind them that they're human, you know, not just somebody to be poked and prodded. And maybe, and this was the most fascinating thing I learned in CPE, Maybe they need to throw me out of the room. And here's why. You see, in a hospital, every bit of dignity and control is taken away from you. 
you are woken up, you are poked and prodded, you are told what to eat, you are given, you know, blood, they're taking blood, they're, you're, you're taking a crap in a bedpan, somebody's wiping your butt for you. Every bit of dignity and control that you learn to control as a toddler is taken away from you. And if I walk in and the one piece of control, the one piece of autonomy that that person has in their life is to throw me out of the room, then even in being thrown out, I have provided care for that person. I've given them control in the uncontrollable. That's incredible. Um, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated right now because I didn't didn't even know um, that what you do um, was a thing, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and especially in the, in the many hospital stays I've had, I, I really, uh, was not part of my care team, <laughs> that's for sure. So, um, it's amazing. You bring up a great point, which is unfortunately at a lot of hospitals. So can we, if we can circle back for those of listeners that I haven't put to sleep yet, um, <laughs> I said at the beginning that chaplaincy is not a protected term. And there's a reason I said that the Association for Professional Chaplains, which is what I'm a member of, that's the APC, for those of you that want to Google that, Association for Professional Chaplains, has certain standards and qualifications to be a clinically board certified chaplain. But many hospitals don't want to pay because it's a it's a, you know, requires a lot of education and they have to be compensated fairly. So unfortunately, what a lot of hospitals are doing, because you said not part of your care team, and this is a great thing to bring up, a lot of hospitals will use religious volunteers, pastors, and clergymen to come in and call them chaplains. And while I respect what clergymen do, I'm an ordained minister myself, they're not clinically trained chaplains. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times these clergymen come in and are just proselytizing, maybe they'll read you a Bible verse or say a prayer with you and walk out. And so unfortunately that has caused a lot of confusion in my profession as to what people think a chaplain is versus what we really are. We are spiritual care practitioners, not clergymen to hit you over the head with the Bible. And so I think it's important for listeners to know that just because somebody comes in and says they're a chaplain, you know, doesn't necessarily mean they have the qualifications and the education to be a clinical chaplain and you have every right to ask so are you a professional chaplain a clinical chaplain or are you bob from you know uh uh the the baptist church down the street yeah that's so fascinating and well and it's i mean it kind of took me back to a, a memory i had because my mom long before she passed she passed away at home but uh when she initially really got in bed with her illness, she had Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, she was in the hospital for, for a few months from like November to March and she got a trach in her system. And we were at a, um, uh, uh, a hospital, a religious hospital. And um, I remember one night leaving um, the ICU and I was walking past the, um, the, the, the waiting room and there was like this group of teenagers and one girl, she was like hysterical, like in the corner, just like sitting against the wall, just like in tears. And uh, I remember just thinking to myself, like I should go talk to her and just like 
to try to be some kind of comfort. Not that I had any sort of qualifications. I was a 15 year old kid who just, whose mom was dying, you know, slowly, but surely. And I was like, I just want to, I should go talk to her. And then I kind of just tried to acknowledge her and said, you know, I said, I, I know my mom's been, my mom's in the ICU right now as well. It's terrible. And I walked away and um, I was like, man, I should have went back and I got on the elevator and I um, went down to the first floor and I'm like, you know, I should go back and just ask if they want someone to pray with them or something. Not that I'm a chap. Like I said, I'm just somebody who, you know, was going through a situation no, but- and wanted to help. And then I got upstairs and they were gone. I was let like, me um, let me yeah let me reiterate that to, to people uh that i'm not saying you need qualifications to be a human or be compassionate to somebody at all um i guess i'm just saying be weary uh and i'm not going to name the organization but there's one particular organization <clears throat> that even as an evangelical christian and it's an evangelical christian organization that i really don't like they are a disaster relief organization that trains people for like a weekend seminar to be quote unquote chaplains. And what they really do is go into these areas where people have been devastated by natural disasters and proselytize. And to me, that's, I guess, what I've always had issue with is people who go in with a specific intent of proselytization yeah um it just always bothers me because you're not seeing the human you're not seeing the person you're seeing an end goal of trying to convert that person to your faith definitely um and that's bothersome but um to go back to what you said Corey, about just sitting with somebody i did that just last night so my very last case last night i worked a four to midnight shift was a motorcycle accident and there were two motorcyclists involved one was wearing gear and went home with a broken arm uh the other was not wearing gear and he uh passed away and he had two daughters a 17 year old and a 14 year old and i remember just in that icu room just sitting down on the floor just kind of not saying a word with the 14 year old just sitting there with her the 17 year old was hugging her dad and the 14 year old, I think it was just too much. And she just sat down in the corner and, you know, it didn't take me any training to just sit there with her and put my, put my arm on her shoulder. And I was able to do that. I, I think not because of my training, but because I lost my father and I know what it's like to see your father dying. And I just, in that moment could channel that experience and remember what it felt like and just sit there and be fully present in the room with that young lady at that time. It's interesting how no matter, you know, what you are trained in or do for a living or, you know, whatever that, that sometimes just our natural instincts kick in. Absolutely. Um, And then also, you know, leveraging our own experiences to think about what we wish we had had (laughs) in those scenarios and doing that for other people. And it's really, really beautiful. Um, But in hearing all this, my mind is going, okay, so, you know, this is something you, you have chosen to do as a profession. And, you know, I'm wondering what it's like for you um, as far as carrying these things with you um is it is it hard for you 
at, at you know at times to to separate to not i mean that that sight in general and being in that room has to be some level of traumatizing um even if you don't know the the person so i'm just wondering how you how you manage the grief of of all of that <laughs> sure uh sometimes not well but that's one thing you you learn in cpe is self-care is so so vital and that's why cpe the clinical pastoral education the the practical portion of your education is so vital in teaching you whether or not this is something you really want to do for a living because <clears throat> you are going to experience and i'm not going to get into all of them i don't i'm not interested in you know sort of the shock and awe factor and especially yeah. with the listeners but yeah absolutely i've seen every type of death imaginable at every type of age imaginable in my career um self-care is vital <laughs> i think a proper framework is vital and and what i mean by a proper framework is when you go into a profession like this you cannot ignore certain realities that i think we all try to ignore every day which is that death is a real thing that happens to a hundred percent of people Yes. Grief and trauma is something that happens to a lot of people. Um, you know, whether it be the next car accident or the next shooting, you know, you're, you're really a hair's breadth away from something like that happening. And so you have to acknowledge those uncomfortable realities. But whether you do it through, for me, it's a faith thing. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to proselytize any of my viewers, but my faith is very important to me. My theology of, of life and of man is very important to me and, and centering myself and understanding that bad thing, very bad things happen in this world and very terrible things happen in this world. And yes, there are traumatizing things that happen, but I have self-care regimens. I try to exercise regularly. I writing is very therapeutic for me. I journal and write quite often. I have a very generous vacation package and I have taken mental health days. Thankfully, I work for a company that has a very, very generous paid time off. And I realize not everybody has that. But um, yeah, self-care and routine and, and are vital. Um, so you're going to see some awful things, but you have to acknowledge that awful things are just part of the human experience. And the way I look at it, going back to the narrative analogy, is so much of this world we try to pretend, right? Whether it's on uh, TikTok, or whether it's on Instagram or Facebook, the old adage that we always take pictures of the perfectly cooked meal, nobody takes pictures of the dirty dishes. And so I think for me, I'm standing in people's dirty dishes and I'm there for that portion of their narrative and it's sacred and it's real mm -hmm. and it's authentic and it's such a counter to the sort of curated creations that people put out on social media and it helps keep me centered and balanced in life. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that and, and helping us understand. And I'm really happy to hear that that is not only something that you practice, but that it is instilled in, in the profession. Um, right. 
because it's it's super super important you can't you can't do the work you do if you aren't doing it for yourself um so you know are these some of the things that you uh suggest to to people you work with um you know what are some of the ways that um you know share share some of the the pieces of the, of hope and things you've seen um and 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 the, and the positive coping and and all of that yeah sure so we do uh we often <clears throat> were a little short staffed on my shift uh i'm it i'm the only chaplain but our hospital little does cape. you're like a hero you're a true hero with, with your little cape <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's always, you know, both with patients and with uh, staff, I've been called back to rooms uh, that I've been to before where people had poor prognosis and then they all of a sudden have turned around and they're going home and they just wanted to call the chaplain and thank me for my service and thank mm -hmm. me for my prayers and the cancer is gone and I'm getting ready to go home or, um, but yeah, we, uh, and we, we encourage staff care as well. Uh, and we, we talk to staff and we do ceremonies uh, called blessing of the hands, which is that's where we just take little, a little bit of oil and we bless the hands and acknowledge the incredible hard work that the staff does, the nurses, doctors, PAs. And, um, you know, we have doctors and PAs. You'd be surprised. People who are doctors have come into my office after, you know, a second or third year surgical resident experiencing their first death chaplain does it ever get any easier does it ever get I, I stayed up all last night crying because was it my mistake that killed him was it my mistake did I not read a chart right did I not read a blood gap you know these are human beings and we've been able to work through that with people and now they're now they're doctors and now they're fully fully fledged you know doctors that have gone on to fruitful careers so um yeah, there are absolutely stories of hope. And we've also, as, as odd as this sounds, and I'll throw out two more resources to your, your listeners, which is uh, two books. Um, when Breath Becomes Air, and I don't know the authors off the top of my head, and, but they can Google them. And being <laughs> Yeah, that's why we've got Google. <laughs> and the other one is Being Mortal. And both of those, I look at as, a tr as crazy as this sounds, getting people to talk about and accept death and accept things like palliative care and being able to die on their own terms and spend their last days on their own terms is a big victory for chaplaincy because for us helping people understand that so people aren't you know necessarily dying in an ICU bed they're dying at home surrounded by family spending their last days the way they wanted to spend them being palliated of pain um, that's another big uh, point of chaplaincy that we educate people on a lot. So I love that so much. I love it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, if you haven't noticed, I am tearing up because it's just, it, it's, this is, it's so beautiful. Um, and like I said, I, I mean, I didn't even necessarily know that, that this was a, a thing and uh, I'm very yeah. impressed. <laughs> so I'll, I'll throw it because I know um, we've got to wrap it up here. So I'll just throw this out to, to your listeners too. If anybody's interested in being a chaplain, um, I would encourage you to start with the Association of Professional Chaplains. There are different levels of certification. You don't have to be uh, a crazy person like me and get the full you know, 10 year experience. There are a lot of hospitals that will hire you as a part-time 
chaplain or a flex or an as needed chaplain with much more limited experience under the supervision of staff chaplains. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you're, if you're just, if you're interested and this is the kind of work where you're like, I, I want to do that. And maybe I don't want to do that full time, but maybe I could do an overnight shift on a Saturday, or maybe I could work one day a week, or I used to be a, a pastor, or I used to be in the clergy or have a parish ministry, but I'd be real interested in helping people at a hospital. Um, you know, something, it's something to look up. So you can just start with the association of professional chaplains and uh, they'll give you a lot of guidance there as far as what's required and um, talk to your local hospital and see what kind of chaplains they hire. But we could always use more chaplains. We could always use more people. <laughs> and, uh, and even if you don't want to go be a chaplain, it takes no experience to care. And a lot of hospitals will have volunteers. There's a program called No One Dies Alone that you can Google about where it's a volunteer organization that just sits with people who are in their last days and it's just with them so that uh, if they don't, uh, if they don't have any family or friends around to be there with them, they will volunteer so that that person isn't alone. So there's a lot of ways you can be a part and we could always use you. So one thing, Derek, before, before we sign off today, um, it's a question we ask every guest on the show. It's more, less of a question, more of a fill in the blank. Um, if you were going to end the sentence, grief is, how would you finish that sentence? It could be a single word. It can be multiple words, but um, grief is. You know what? I'm going to cheat. Can I cheat? Sure, uh, go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat and use something we've already said in this podcast, but I think it, it ties into the, to the narrative of, or the narrative of narratives that we're all sort of writing and reading and sharing the same story. Grief is universal. Grief yes. is universal. Yes, that is wonderful. Um, Derek, thank you so much for being here today for talking with thank us. Thank you guys. Um, <laughs> hope, yeah, I you know it was, it was great getting to know more about what you do. Um, and thank you so much. And everybody who's tuning in today, thank you for being here and we will talk to you later. All right, God bless and thank you. Bye, everybody.